Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shia, a sophomore at UCLA, the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden, and also one of the co-hosts of this podcast. And I'm Jill Weinbanks, the author of The Watergate Girl, and also an MSNBC legal analyst and the wearer of Jill's pins. Hashtag Jill's pins. Today's pins are symbolic of the cover of our guest book. Uh, They are umbrellas, and the cover of his book, which I'm holding up for our um, YouTube audience, is a picture from the Hong Kong protests and features the umbrellas. Today we're going to be talking about, has America lost its supremacy? Has America caused democracies backsliding in countries like Hungary, China, and Russia? What is our position on the global stage after four years of a president who shattered both domestic and international norms. How do other countries see America in 2021? How do we see ourselves? And what can we do about it? These are questions that Ben Rhodes explores in his brand new book, After the Fall, Being American in the World We've Made. Uh, ben Rhodes is currently a contributor for NBC News and MSNBC, co-host of Pod Save the World, a senior advisor to former President Obama, and chair of the National Security Action, which he co-founded with Jake Sullivan in 2018. From 2009 until 2017, Ben was one of President Obama's most trusted aides and participated in many of President Obama's key policy decisions. He served as Deputy National Security Advisor to President Obama for strategic communications and speechwriting, and he was also featured in a compelling documentary, The Final Year, and previously authored The World As It Is, a memoir of the Obama White House, a New York Times bestseller as well. Thank you so much, Ben, for being on. We are so lucky to have you here with us today. I'm really glad to be here with you guys. It's been we've been it's been in the works for a while, so I'm glad we got it worked out. Us too, and we're very excited to be talking about your new book, which weaves memoir analysis and reporting on the state of affairs in America, Hungary, Russia, and China. You traveled widely to talk to ordinary citizens, activists, dissidents. People you might not have met were you still in the White House. And you did this to gather facts about how others see us. And it seemed to me, in a way, to clear your own thoughts after leaving the White House in the hands of Donald Trump. So could you talk to us about what made you decide to write this book and what you learned while you were writing it? Well, it's a great way to start the conversation. I mean, for me, you know, when I... I, I was spit out at the end of eight years in the Obama administration um, and had the kind of, I think, already disorienting experience, right, of having spent eight years in the White House and then suddenly you're outside. And then you compound that with the opposite of everything you believe in is in the White House and is day by day seeking to dismantle everything you did. And then you look around the world and you have this sense that, 
you know, the things I care about, democracy, is, is beleaguered everywhere. Um, I really wanted to go out and find a way to understand um, from different perspectives why this was happening, why the same thing seemed to be happening everywhere in terms of the threats to democracy. And I started to have conversations kind of on my travels with, like you said, the kind of people that kind of lived the things I worked on in the White House, but that I couldn't really you know, engage with on a regular basis. And this runs the gamut from an Alexei Navalny, obviously a very prominent figure in Russia, to just young people in Hong Kong uh, who are caught up in the protest movement, to democracy activists in Hungary who've seen something very similar happen to their country as what's happened in the United States, where you have a party trying to use the gears of democracy to turn it into an autocracy. And, you know, what I found, it's like uh, the, the, the metaphor that popped in my head early in this process was, it's like when you're in a family that has some problems um, and sometimes you have to talk to people outside your own family to understand what's happened. Um, I felt like uh, it, it, Americans were so inside of our own daily dramas in the Trump years that to, to gain an appreciation for the trends and the structural issues that were informing the challenges to democracy in our own country and around the world, I could best understand that by talking to these people and I could have a kind of a unique conversation with them as someone who brought the perspective of having kind of been in the room for, you know, uh, geopolitics and politics for so many years with people who were fighting against uh, the kind of autocracy that has been gaining momentum. Um, it, it, and that kind of unlocked what became the whole book, which is how does my personal story as an American interact with these people around the world? Uh, what, what common experiences have we shared and, and what can we learn from each other? I found it to be a very personal story that really was compelling. Um, and it seems to me that maybe you needed to have the time of viewing the Trump administration uh, before even seeing the need to write the book. But I'm wondering about the release date. Was it time to anything in particular? Or was it something that you saw a growing need to uh, release the book because of what was happening? You know, or well, what so had it, happened? Yeah, I, I, it's a, that's an interesting question, Jill, I haven't gotten yet. And, and the, I did not want this to come out before our election. You know, I felt it was going to be very important to, to, to get through that um, hurdle um, and to see where things were. Um, at the same time, I felt a growing sense of urgency around this book. Um, I, like I said, I spent some time talking to Alexei Navalny, who is kind of a key character in, in describing what's been happening in Russia. He was poisoned last summer, um, you know, and, and almost killed um, and subsequently imprisoned. Um, I spent this time with in Hong Kong and talking to Hong Kong protesters and young people. And while I'm writing this book last summer, China passes national security laws that essentially end Hong Kong democracy. Uh, and these people, many of them had to leave the country. And, and so th things are getting worse um, in terms of the democratic movements and activists on profiling in a lot of ways. And the U.S. is kind of teetering, um, you know, we could, we could break in the wrong direction. If our election had gone the wrong way, I think we're in a very different place, um, in a very darker place, although we still have enormous challenges ahead of us. And what was so interesting for me is that I wrote this book and edited it, and, and it's basically, again, about how America is a part of this trend where democracy is threatened for a lot of different reasons. And I, I literally put the kind of finishing touches on the edit around January 6th. Um, and what was really eerie to me is I went back and I read the book 
considering whether I needed to make any last minute changes to kind of work in January 6. And in a really chilling way, the book kind of naturally leads up to January 6. You know, January 6 was kind of the logical endpoint of the story I'm telling about this kind of undemocratic nationalist authoritarian trend gaining traction here and the extent to which conspiracy theories and disinformation can motivate people and the extent to which the Republican Party mirrors some of these other autocratic parties that is willing to kind of break every norm. Um, and so when, when January 6th happened, right as I'm finishing this book, then I was like, we have to get this book out as soon as we can, because this is exactly what's happening here and around the world. And that's sort of why I asked the question was because it seemed to me that there was a pressing need for this yeah. book to come out. Um, and, and I went through sort of the same thing you did was in finishing up my book, I was writing the epilogue just as the impeachment was happening and trying to get it right so that it would be evergreen and not die with whatever happened with the impeachment. But you mentioned a word in talking about this that was dark. And for those of our listeners who are watching on YouTube, I'm holding up a cover of the book. And if you're not listening on YouTube, then uh, go to our um, show notes and you'll be able to see a picture of this. And the cover is, aside from the title being After the Fall, which is ominous, the cover is very dark and has people wearing, uh, holding up umbrellas against this gloom and doom um, which explains why I'm wearing um, Jill's pins today, our umbrellas, is because of your book cover. Um, and, and so I, I want to talk about that darkness that is um, portrayed in the title and the cover and how you felt about that. Well, I think, um, first of all, the cover, you know, is uh, a Hong Kong protest and Hong Kong protesters use umbrellas as a symbol of their movement. Um, it both conceals their identity, but also uh, can can be defensive against pepper spray, right? So there's something, there's something dark about the the use of umbrellas, although there's something beautiful about them as well, um, which is kind of how I you know look at the Hong Kong movement in that it reflects a tremendous amount of resilience, creativity, determination to fight for democratic rights and values, even as you know the story is obviously a dark one of of an encroaching kind of totalitarian Chinese Communist Party swallowing up this open city. And I wanted a protest, a Hong Kong protest that also looked like it could be taking place in any city. Um, if you just look, glance at the buildings beyond some Chinese characters on one, you know, could, could, could at first look appear to be in the United States. And, and, and I wanted to convey that kind of global aspect to it. And then there's something interesting in the photo too, which is that there are American flags. Um, and, and often um, young Hong Kongers would hold American flags in part to get our attention, um, but in part to kind of align themselves with, with what that flag is supposed to represent um, in the world um, at its best, which is the struggle for, for democratic values. So there's something hopeful to me about that. I mean, what I found in writing the book is I, I wasn't, uh, the word I prefer is, is kind of honest than dark in the sense that I think sometimes we, you know, we, we so want to inhabit a story that is inevitably leading to a happy ending, that, that we, we don't acknowledge the harsh truth that is staring us in the face. And, and you see this every time something happens in America, you know, like January 6th, people are shocked, and then things don't change, and the Republican Party embraces the big lie, and, 
and, and, and we need to stop being shocked. And, and the only way to stop being shocked is, is to just be honest and, and, and unfiltered in how we're looking at and digesting what's happening in the world. I personally found, though, that if you, in my experience of writing the book, I found so much hope in all these people um, that this is not how people want to live. The, the, the drift of events does not need to inevitably lead to this kind of increasingly authoritarian future, that, that the hope we should have is in one another, um, in, in what young people are trying to do in Hong Kong. What can we learn from them to, 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 to heed their warning um, you know, from all these young activists in Hungary who, who are making real headway and building an opposition to an autocratic government there? Um, even in a guy like Alexei Navalny, there's hope to me in the, the in, in immense stubbornness of a man who knows he's going to be thrown in prison, going back um, and, and accepting that fate because he wants to fight for what he believes in. Um, you know, to me, there's darkness in a guy like that being in prison, but there's, there's hope in his act of defiance. Um, and, and to me, that's where the book is kind of balanced between this question of we are headed in a, the wrong direction <laughs> globally, but um, we, have the op- we have the agency as human beings to decide to move in a different direction if enough of us care about it. And the way to get people to care about it in part is to write books like this and have conversations like this and, and to make people see um, uh, just how, how you know, serious the situation is. Exactly. Well, well said. And let's talk a little bit more about the people that you selected to speak to or that you were able to speak to um, you know, leading activists, a lot of them dissidents, and people, as you've said, who were willing to stand up and risk everything for the idea of democracy. And how did you find these specific people? Uh, some of them you had met before, and some of them had changed dramatically from the time you first met them. I'm thinking uh, Myanmar, for, for one. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I, you know, what's interesting for me is um, I, unfortunately, if you're, if you're writing a book about this subject, you could write about a lot of countries. Um, and, I, and so the first choice was, where was I going to write about? And um, obviously, um, if you're writing about the challenges to democracy in the world, um, China is going to figure uh, in that story. Um, Russia is going to figure in that story. And I'll come back to that. But, but Hungary, I chose in part because it mirrored so closely our own experience. And so for me, for instance, one of the key characters there is a guy named Shandor Lederer. Um, and I met him at an Obama Foundation event. You know, and, and Obama still attracts, through his foundation and his travels, interaction with a lot of uh, young activists. And, and so a, a number of the people in the book are people that I met through that kind of experience. Mm-hmm. And I sat down with Shandor in Germany. I, I, I put this question to him, you know, how did... Hungary go from being basically a democracy to a single party autocracy in about a decade. And he said, well, that's simple. Um, and, and Chandra is an anti-corruption activist. Um, and he said, that's simple. You know, Viktor Orban got elected on a right wing kind of populist backlash to the financial crisis. He redrew the parliamentary districts to entrench his party in power. He packed the courts with kind of far right judges who would back his, his authoritarian project. He enriched a bunch of cronies through corruption who then bought up the media, turned it in kind of a right-wing mouthpiece and propaganda machine, financed Orban's own politics. He changed the voting laws to make it easier for his supporters to vote. And he wrapped it all up in a kind of nationalist us versus them message, us, the real Hungarians, white Christian Hungarians, them, Muslims, illegal immigrants, George Soros. And, you know, he's describing basically 
you know, the exact experience of, of living with the Republican Party for the last decade. And that made me think, well, this Hungary story is a way to tell the story of what's happened both in Hungary and parts of Europe where you see this trend, but it's also a way to tell the story of what's happened in, in America. And what I wanted to find were, were young Hungarians dealing with that from different perspectives of society. So I've got Shandor, who's an anti-corruption activist. I've Catalan Che, who's a, a young, early 30s politician who's made real headway in building a new political party and revitalizing the opposition there. Um, I've got an investigative journalist who's had to cover the corruption uh, and deal with the attacks on journalism. I've got a civil society activist um, who, uh, whose organization has kind of been targeted by Orban. So civil society, journalism, anti-corruption, politics. I wanted to kind of cover the spectrum of what is the experience of being in opposition to an increasingly autocratic government. And I wanted to find generationally um, people my age or, or younger um, because I wanted to, 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 to look at essentially how, how are younger people responding to this. Um, and it, it made for a, a brilliant you know, canvas of voices that I could interact with. I think in, in Russia and China, because the story is more well known, um, I, 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 you know, in Russia I, could, I reached out to an Alexei Navalny. I, just, I was trying to find other people, but then I realized, you know what, Navalny's the guy to tell this story. He's the chief opponent to Putin. Um, and, and so I reached out to some friends in common, got connected to, to Navalny that way. Um, and in China, I have a bunch of people, but really the Hong Kong protesters became the, the centerpiece of, of that chapter because here are people that are literally living in a situation where they're experiencing what it's like to lose democracy in real time uh, and they're fighting back. Um, but I wanted this kind of mixed Jill of like prominent people like Navalny, younger people you've never heard of activists who've made a name for themselves in their countries but may not be well known here. I wanted that diversity so it's not just a bunch of prominent people or just a bunch of anonymous mm -hmm. people, but that mix of experiences. And of course, Victor and I love the intergenerational yeah. approach that you took because that's the whole purpose of this is to have a conversation that spans Victor's generation, your generation, my generation. And um, so I'm, I'm going to ask Victor to ask you the next question. Yeah, well, I mean, the quote that you mentioned, that occurs in chapter one of the book. And, you know, this happened, I believe, in April of 2017, which is just three months after Donald Trump had been elected. And I'm wondering just how disturbing it was to see those striking similarities between U.S. and Hungary. Um, and, and I wonder if you kind of track the evolution of that um, as the Donald Trump administration went on and whether or not that person from Hungary did kind of express similarities um, as the administration went on? Well, first of all, Victor, I think one of the things that was disturbing to me is I, I, I knew this story because I'd lived in the Obama years. And, you know, I'd gotten kind of increasingly angry in the Obama years and, uh, and, and kind of probably got cast as something of a partisan figure when that's not where I intended to be. You know, in 2008, we're writing speeches about red and blue states coming together. But particularly from the Tea Party on in 2010, this was, this was the party that, like Donald Trump, you know, didn't come out of nowhere and change the Republican Party. In fact, Donald Trump was the leading frontrunner for the Republican nomination from the moment he entered the race, because that's who the Republican Party already was in 2015. And so, so part of it was this sense that our politics and media was not accurately describing the radicalism of what had happened, even in the Obama years, um, with the embrace of conspiracy theory and the breaking of norms and the manipulation of, of money and politics, the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, you know, the, the, the really hyper-partisan redistricting efforts to, to entrench minority rule of a majority. 
And so what was interesting is when I talked to Shandor, you know, sometimes when you're describing the United States from within it, it's hard to find the right language. But if we assessed ourselves in the same way that we would assess Viktor Orban, we would not, I think, even have been referring to the United States as a full democracy in the Trump years. We would have been on a a spectrum, uh, an authoritarianism spectrum. And one of the things that was so jarring to me, you mentioned did Chandor and I continue to talk about this, is you know, after a lot of discussion of the similarities between Orban and Trump, and, and during the Trump years, by the way, he rolled out the red carpet. He trumped for Victor Orban to visit the White House and kind of gave him a, a full embrace. And, 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 and Orban early in COVID tried to pass some laws that kind of gave him sweeping dictatorial powers to detain people for criticizing the government. And so I sent Chandor a note and was like, hey, is everything okay there? You know, kind of like an American reaching out to somebody in a beleaguered society. And, and he writes back to me, yeah, we're fine. This is just what Orban does. Uh, what's going on in America? Can you please tell me what's going to happen? And he was more worried about, and this is when Trump is, you know, ignoring COVID and, you know, talking about injecting bleach and becoming increasingly erratic. And, and, and someone, even from someone living within a pretty challenging system, saw much more to fear in what was happening in America. And, and so I think Americans, again, we just fail sometimes to recognize that if we were looking at ourselves from the perspective of another country, particularly in the Trump years, where you have like a raving lunatic autocrat um, with nuclear weapons, like you, you would be pretty, you would be more alarmed than than we were on a daily basis. No, I t- I totally agree. I think it's sometimes it's it, we sometimes I think overlook some of our flaws and kind of reading your book. I think it's definitely important to have that honesty that you write about and kind of talking to other people in different countries. And I'm wondering, you know, because you talk about these different similar these uh, similarities between America, China, Russia, Hungary. What do you think are the biggest differences that you see in those four countries? Well, I think the the so um, the biggest differences the big and I look at this in the book is that. First of all, China never made any pretense of being a democracy, right? So they, they've always been kind of on the other side of this line. Um, you know, even Russia, after the fall of the Cold War, you know, made a pretense of, of, of giving a, a go at it in terms of democracy. Um, and, and the Chinese basically have been developing since Tiananmen Square their alternative model to democracy. And it's very intentional. It's like, how do we mix together? You know, okay, we have to open up to capitalism after the fall of the Cold War. How can we mix together capitalism, technology, surveillance, in this kind of totalitarian nationalist system that we have? And they've gotten better at perfecting that model. And now they've kind of taken it out. Um, I mean, Hong Kong, technically, obviously, part of China, but was supposed to have a different system. Now they're beginning to take that model to other places. Um, and, and that's alarming. Um, I think the, the differences with Russia, you have a situation where the rest of them are quite similar in a way, in the sense that it, it, it is people who've gotten elected through democratic means, Putin and Orban in the U.S. case, Trump, the Republican Party, um, and then trying to, to, to manipulate the machinery of government to turn the state into an autocracy. And the, the playbook has been quite similar in the sense that you see both a a nationalist message, you know, make Russia great again, make Hungary great again, make America great again, all rooted in ethnicity and religion, right? A white Christian nationalist message. And then an authoritarian playbook that step by step turns democratic institutions into autocratic ones. 
And that's where the differences come in because Putin is at the far end of the spectrum. He has done that. He has basically turned Russia. He's taken institutions that were meant to be democratic and controlled them entirely. Orban is kind of somewhere on that spectrum. He's, he's taken kind of pretty much total control of the media, of the courts, uh, of chunks of the economy. But there is still an operating opposition. There's still an operating civil society in the way that there's not in Russia. Uh, and then America, like Hungary, is on this spectrum. And, and we you know, clearly have democratic institutions that were able to hold through the Trump years. But you know, there are some serious strains in there. And we're seeing now, when it comes to the right to vote or it comes to redistricting, we still see this kind of a playbook of trying to manipulate democratic institutions for autocratic ends. So that's how I kind of look at it. It's like a spectrum um, with China as the most extreme version, then Russia, then Hungary, and then America. And, and looking at that full spectrum should make us appreciate more <laughs> um, why we want to preserve democracy and, and look at those dark places in order to, to better appreciate the good things about what American democracy offers if we defend it. Right. And, and as a part of that authoritarian playbook that you mentioned, um, you identify one of the first elements of a democracy backsliding is propaganda and the um, degradation of a free press. And I'm wondering if you can talk about how that's played out in the three foreign countries that you focused on in your book along that spectrum and then how it's happening in the U.S. Yeah, it's really interesting. So there's um, there's an extreme, the same kind of spectrum. And at the, 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 the two common characteristics I think we have to to understand or, or one authoritarian governments try to control an understanding of the past. Uh, and then they obviously also try to create their own reality around current events, right? And so the extreme version is in China. Tiananmen Square doesn't exist in China. Like I talked to young Chinese people who are like, it's whitewashed from the internet. It's whitewashed from the schools. Most people of my generation don't even know it happened. Or if they do, they know almost nothing about it, right? And, and that's erasure of history. And at the same time, the Chinese Communist Party kind of creates this reality of a rising ascendant China standing up to its adversaries with a lot of nationalist kind of anti-Western, anti-US, anti-Japanese stuff from the schools on, right? And that, so that's kind of what you can do with total control. I think if you look at Putin and you look at Orban, Orban, I spent a bunch of time on this. You know, he basically, Hungary's had a complicated history um, where the far right collaborated with the Nazis, and then obviously the communist regime backed by the Soviets. So they suffered from the far left and the far right. Orban has kind of pretty deftly um, focused on communism as the enemy um, of the Hungarian people. And he's kind of re rehabilitated in, in a lot of ways the kind of far right aspects of Hungary's history. Um, and everything from statues to school curriculum um, and then he's also created a kind of alternative reality through his media megaphone where, you know, there's always some scary danger that Viktor Orban is protecting us from. And, you know, Chandra described to me that this could be a, a shifting cast of, of enemies, um, you know, is immigrants, Muslims, but also gay people, you know, also homeless people uh, and on and on. And, and, and there's this kind of blend of fear and conspiracy theory and celebration of Orban. Looking at America... I mean, all of these same things are happening here. So, you know, we see the, the debate over, say, critical race theory as, you know, just yet another culture war. No, this is like, it's very important to autocratic movements to control understanding about the past 
um, so as to, to perpetuate your version of history. And if your version of history is make America great again, and to kind of go back to some time where, let's face it, this was more an exclusive white supremacist project in a lot of ways, um, you obviously don't want to teach people um, the enormous human suffering um, that has been associated with structural racism um, in the same way that we saw debates over statues. All these things are happening in other places, and, 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 and there's a reason why the past is such a battleground, because it suggests kind of where things should be going. In the same way that we see here, if you look at the where America is pretty far along in this process, if you look at the information ecosystem that 40 percent of this country lives in, where Fox is, you know, probably the most <laughs> credible news source. If you get online and in Facebook, you know, and on the Breitbart and on the talk radio, it's just people living in conspiracy theory. And if you think that's an overstatement, look at any poll of the percentage of Republicans who, who believe that Donald Trump won the election. That's because they live in an alternative reality, right? And, and so to me, the, the, these battlegrounds of of what information are people consuming, what is the news for people, and how do people understand their past is always a very telling um, exemplar of where, where, how we're dealing with democracy. I mean, it's one of the most concerning challenges, and it's something that Jill and I talk extensively about with a focus on how we can stop the spread of mis- and dis- disinformation to get facts to matter again. You know, Jill always talks to me about Watergate when we had three networks. They agreed on the facts, but, you know, you could have different opinions, but the facts remained the same. And um, you know, this goal of communicating truth to those who get their news on Fox News and other right-wing sites and unvetted social media, what do you think is the best way to fix it? I mean, is there a way to fix that? I think there's a couple of things. I mean, first of all, the biggest piece of this problem is, is, is social media. And, and I lived this in the Obama years, right? In 2008, to Jill's point, you know, if Barack Obama gave a big speech, it would be covered on the three networks. That's how most people would consume it. They'd read about it in the newspaper. We've gone through it and uh, like, put it this way, you know, sometimes people ask me like, well, doesn't this happen all the time? Isn't there always a competition between democracy and authoritarians? What's really different about now? This is what's different. We've gone through a time where the way in which human beings can access information has been completely transformed. So that even by the end of the Obama years, nobody would, in that 40% of the country, they would never see the speech I wrote. They wouldn't see him deliver the speech. They wouldn't see a sober, fact-based uh, analysis of the speech. All they would see is the kind of funhouse mirrors depiction of Obama, the radical socialist, or Obama, you know, the scary black man, whatever the thing was. That, 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 that's all they were get- getting on their Facebook feeds. That's all they were getting on, 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 on their Twitterverse. That's all they were getting, obviously, on Fox News. And that is a massive shift. And and we have to realize that the biggest chunk of that is social media, right? Like a huge percentage of Americans get their news on Facebook. And we have to recognize that we look at this problem sometimes and think, well, these are algorithms and, you know, there's nothing we can do about this. No, these algorithms are written and created by human beings to maximize profit. And so what does that mean? That means that they are mainlining the most triggering, most sensationalist information to people, knowing that that will make them engage more with their platform so that they can get more clicks and get more ad revenue. A good example of this is we kept hearing, we've been hearing ever since 2011 with the birther allegations, that we have to cover Donald Trump because the people want Donald Trump. When Donald Trump was kicked off Twitter and had a blog, Nobody went to it. So few people went to it that they had to shut it down because Donald Trump sitting there and just saying things and shooting them out in the world is not what 
generates this revenue. It's when you, 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 it only works in the contact. It only works if you take a Trump tweet and you fire it out there and a million people then have to respond because they're either enraged or they're motivated by it. And, and so to me, the, the, the public policy imperative is to find a way to regulate social media platforms to crack down on hate speech and outright disinformation. And this raises complicated issues of free speech, but like the current status quo is, is tearing our country apart. And it's, it's got people who won't get vaccinated. It's got people just living. I, I could be totally wrong, Victor, about policy, the size of government, foreign policies, but like there has to be an agreed on reality. <laughs> I'm not asking people to agree with my views. I'm asking people to agree on just basic facts as the basis of a democracy. And so I do think there's a regulatory approach that you have to take over time to social media platforms so that they have some responsibility for what's on their platforms when it's completely untrue, when it's hate speech, when it's disinformation. And you can start with the easy places. You can start with state-sponsored disinformation from automated bots. Why are we protecting the free speech of a Russian bot? You know, that's not what free speech protection is supposed to be about. And then the other point I think that the progressives need to internalize, and this is a partisan view, obviously, but is like, why are we not investing in, in media? And by the way, it doesn't have to be crazy opinionated media like Fox. It can be more uh, like Sinclair, the right wing outfit, buying up all the local news. Why is there not people investing in local news? There's plenty of people with means in this country who could uh, try to build a much healthier media uh, for, a, frankly, not a lot of money. Um, if you look at what Rupert Murdoch's achieved with not, you know, I mean, it's like he's a billionaire, but it's not like he's had hundreds of billions of dollars. Like, you know, we need to fight this battle of, of, of reality versus the alternative reality. I think there is nothing more important than that, because as has often been said, you're entitled to your own opinions. You're not entitled to your own facts. Yeah. And in this factory world, we, we have a problem. And one of sort of related to that, your book deals with, um, and often mentions, mentions us versus them. And I, I wanted to pursue that a little with you and have our audience understand what you meant by that. So could you start with that? Well, I think at the core of it is every authoritarian uh, movement ha has an us versus them framework to it. Um, and if you look at the, the, the direction the Republican Party has taken, you know, the, it's very much been an us versus them um, mentality, particularly in, I look at the book of the kind of post 9-11, a lot of the fear and kind of xenophobia stirred up that was originally directed at terrorists could be redirected, you know, and so it was us, kind of the real Americans, as Sarah Palin would say, versus them, and them, you know, was Muslim terrorists, but then it kind of became immigrants at our southern border, or the black president, or socialism, or Antifa, or kneeling black athletes, or just open, you know, turn on Fox every day, there's a new them, you know, um, and, and, and that's the kind of core of the project, is that, that you motivate your followers by saying you're a part of this team, the true Americans, and it's what Putin and Orban have done, and against them. I think the challenge for progressives is it's that, you know, the momentum is to become the mirror image of that, you know, and, and it's just our us versus them. Um, and, and there's some, look, there's a version of that that has to play out in politics. But I do think that we can, that what, what we stand for is a multiracial, multiethnic democracy um, that values diversity. Um, and so implicitly, um, I would hope that the kind of progressive response to us versus them politics is to take it seriously, but to be offering 
a more inclusive alternative, even as you're not willing to compromise on basic things like facts or like uh, racism or, 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 you know, the, the, the things that are, are corrosive to a multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy. And, and that is maybe the only antidote, because I think you make it clear in your book that authoritarian leaders that you studied there use the us and them as a way to increase fear and polarization and as an essential tool to divide the population. And that's something that obviously is happening here right now uh, with the silos of information and people only looking at the ones that reflect their pre-existing views. But so against this backdrop of, of both this polarization, but also the diminution of rights and liberties that has happened in you know, Russia, China, Hungary, and it happened during the Trump administration. Um, there are inspiring individuals that you identified. And was there a common theme to what they were fighting for or what they were fighting against or any shared characteristics that you could identify that we might look for in leaders here in America to fight this problem? Yeah, I, 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 and first of all, there's hope out there. I mean, there, there, the, the, our election, a number of elections uh, in different places recently, um, as I said, the Hungarian opposition has a real chance to knock off Orban next year in an election because, for re reasons I'll get to. Because uh, basically, the common thread I found out there is that um, people are, are, are working to find ways to be themselves, to, to, to define their own identity, um, absent autocracy and corruption. That, that basically, identity politics was hijacked by these people. Um, identity politics, you know, there's no ideology behind this. It's not about communism, fascism, like the 20th century. This is about what does it mean to be Chinese? What does it mean to be Russian? What does it mean to be Hungarian? What does it mean to be American? Identity politics is, is the kind of the battleground of politics in the 21st century. Um, and all the momentum has been with a lot of these right-wing populists uh, and what I found a common thread in these oppositions is people saying, no, like we, we can be proud Hungarians, we can be proud Russians in Navalny's case, we, we can be proud Americans, um, and, and embrace a democratic and inclusive identity. Um, and, and if you look at the way in which they're doing this in Hungary, for instance, a common uh, a tactic that I think we should learn from an American, we did in the last election, is the entire opposition is unified. They put an umbrella over all the different opposition parties uh, to take on Orban and recognizing that democracy is bigger than any of their other differences. I think it's a lesson for us, is, is so long as we're in this existential moment, we have to keep as big a tent as possible over people who are alarmed by the d degree to which the authoritarianism we see from the Republican Party is, is anathema to our American identity. Um, I think when you look at a Navalny, he was able to forge a very potent crit critique uh, that could reach people maybe who don't care about high concepts of politics but care about corruption. This kind of autocracy is fundamentally corrupt, and it ultimately leads to people enriching themselves at your expense. It's the most potent political message that's out there, and it appeals to people who don't care about voting rights and redistricting, but they do care about the fact that they're getting screwed because the autocratic political party is trying to enrich the wealthiest donors that it has through tax cuts, right? There's, there's a fundamental corruption to the Republican Party that I don't think the Democratic Party has, has done enough. To, to drive that, uh, that message. And, and Navalny, the reason he was getting such traction in Russia was through that anti-corruption work and by exposing uh, Putin's corruption. And by the way, I think we could help him do that 
uh, in exposing uh, corruption. Because corruption can be a very motivating factor to an opposition and it can draw in people uh, who might be, you know, might find something alluring in the nationalist message but can get incredibly angry about the fact that, that they're getting screwed so that these people can enrich themselves. And then I think in Hong Kong, even though obviously the movement failed because it was up against such asymmetry of power, what I found there is how much people, to this identity point, the movement became not just about the democratic values, it became about like a culture, a democratic culture of people coming together and kind of finding themselves and in, in joining a movement um, in participation. Um, and I think I feel that in America here too, that younger people, you know, political engagement, you know, what the autocrats want is for you to be cynical or apathetic. But the act of political engagement can be very empowering. Um, and so I, I, I think that the, the more and more people getting involved, the fact that these conversations are happening in a way today that they weren't a few years ago, is all cause for hope that the pendulum can swing back if, if this energy continues to shift. And do you think it can happen here too? Because I really see the same exact problem here with the, the division and the lack of uh, understanding of what facts are. Uh, you can have MSNBC and Fox, but if you're only watching one of them, you're living in the reality that that one creates. One happens to be based on facts, in my opinion, and yeah. the other isn't. But how can we get people who are solely listening to the right-wing media to pay attention? Uh, you said we need a better messaging and the Democrats haven't done enough to get the message out. And I agree with you, but nobody's come up with a way to get that across yeah. to people. I, look, in the short and medium term, like, uh, we just have to win elections. Um, and because, because I'm not hopeful that a, a whole bunch of those people will um, return to reality. Um, but the, the truth is that they, that they still don't amount to uh, like a, a, a majority that can win elections if Democrats turn out and vote. And here's the hardest thing, Jill, is that I think Americans want this, the Americans who care about democracy kind of want this to be fixed in one election. And so we, we had to expend an enormous amount of effort to oust Donald Trump, even in a pandemic that he had neg criminally negligently mismanaged. Um, and then it's like, okay, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema won't support getting rid of the filibuster. Um, what do we do? Um, and, and the reality is, this is like a, not a two-year proposition or four-year proposition. This is like the next 12 to 16 years of elections in this country. Each one is going to be that important. And by the way, we'll probably lose some. Like we may lose the, the House. And, and, oh. and what, what I saw in other parts of the world is the right is very good at being patient and relentless and methodical. Um, and they don't give up. They don't lose an election and kind of say, oh my God, this is hopeless. You know, they, they burrow in, like they lost this election, what do they do? They're rewriting the voting laws in 25 states. They're getting ready for the next round, you know? And there's just no alternative um, to, to, to people saying, well, if Joe Manchin won't do this, we're gonna fight these at the state level and we're gonna try to register as many people to vote as we can. And, and we're, you know, like, it, it's just gonna have to be that kind of effort because absent that effort, um, you know, we should have no expectation that the, that the Republican Party has some guardrail that it won't break. I mean, once you've acceded to a mob storming your workplace and then you're, you're, you're basically agreeing with them and trying to decertify the election result, then you're implementing their your agenda. 
by passing laws in Georgia and Arizona that allow Republican officials to overturn an election result, and then you're refusing to investigate that. Well, th these these people are telling us what their plan is. Like they're not hiding like th what they're doing. Yeah. Um, we're just going to need to be that motivated on the other side. You know, one of um, the most important parts of your book, I think, is the role that America has in has played in shaping the world as it is now. And um, so first, can you talk about that and how exactly America veered away from the ideals of democracy? Um, you know, you mentioned that it didn't begin with Donald Trump, but how far back does it go, do you think? I mean, you, you can go back as far as you want. I chose the Cold War's end because I felt like for all our, you know, imperfections in the Cold War, there was an organizing principle around American national identity and America's role in the world that was tied to democracy. Like that, and again, you know, there was hypocrisy in there and mistakes, but still, like that was the, the purpose of what America was in the world and how we thought of ourselves um, through the Cold War. And, and I think what's happened is since the end of the Cold War, since the fall of the Berlin Wall, democracy drifted down the prioritization list. And, and I looked at kind of three aspects of American, the excesses of this era of kind of American hegemony. Um, capitalism, where the kind of lust for profit, the, the deregulation and, and the flood of globalization that culminated in the financial crisis, the kind of collapse of the global financial system, that represented kind of the excesses of American capitalism in, in its most unregulated strain. And that caused an enormous blowback. A lot of the right-wing blowback around the world is post-financial crisis because people could say, hey, this whole system is rigged. Uh, we might as well go back to the oldest system in the book, which is the nationalist one. Um, and you see that very much in Trump's appeals. I talk about the excesses of post-9-11, the post-9-11 era, where clearly, you know, things like the Iraq War undercut both America standing in the world, but also democracy itself, because democracy was used as this kind of justification for a war that was not at all democratic, you know, and, and that has consequences. And you've seen Putin and Xi Jinping in China kind of expropriate the language of the war on terror to suit a kind of authoritarian agenda. Putin's power grabs were all premised on anti-terrorism at the beginning, you know. Um, and that's something we have to reckon with, I think. In the same way that 9-11 created this kind of us versus them politics at home that I talk about. And then, of course, technology is the third one, that the explosion of American-made social media and the internet, which was going to connect the world, could also become these tools of disinformation and surveillance. So to me, it's these, and when I think about it, in its foreign relations, has America prioritized democracy or security and profit in the last 30 years? I would like to think that when I was there, we, you know, on some issues, we prioritized democracy. But if I'm honest, if in a relationship with, like with China, we, you know, we, we didn't go to the mat on democratic issues in the same way we did with trade issues. There's something that's been wired into um, uh, America's kind of post-Cold War moment where we, maybe because we got complacent, maybe we thought, well, democracy won, so it can be deprioritized. And so what I'm arguing is, and by the way, let me say, we've also done some great things in the world, right? And, and even the spread of globalization has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. The, there's a place for all aspects of the influence America can have in the world. I do just think if we're honest with ourselves, at home and around the world, democracy since the end of the Cold War has not been the, the priority, despite all the rhetoric about it. And George Bush, you know, the freedom agenda, well, that, that, that discredited democracy because the freedom agenda was associated with the war in Iraq, which is not what you want. It's not good branding for democracy, you know. Um, so to me, this is all about 
returning to a place where democracy itself is the top priority at home and around the world. And, you know, I was having a conversation with um, one of my, uh, someone older than I am, and it was kind of striking to hear that, you know, my generation or people my age, we didn't grow up in a 9-11 era. We grew up after the 9-11 era and so much switched between 9-11 after that. And I'm wondering what you think, you know, because your book talks about the role that young people have and also the, you know, it features young people around the world and how they lived up to, and how they lived up to democracy um, and protect those values. What do you think it is for young people in America? Like, how do you think young people in America should approach kind of capturing that spirit of democracy again? Well, I think, I mean, first of all, I, I, I think we'd get better outcomes the more young people are engaged. Um, you know, I, I shared the standard in the book of like uh, having a class of mine at UCLA read a speech by that George Bush gave after 9-11, which he basically makes our entire national purpose, like this war on terror. Um, and I asked them, like, what are the issues that you care about? And you know, it was climate change, it was racial injustice, it was inequality, it was student debt. Um, terrorism wasn't on the list. The kind of absurdity of, of an, our nation continuing to spend trillions of dollars in a war against terrorism when all these other issues, never mind democracy itself, are getting neglected. That's a very health, healthy, you know, a nation needs to regenerate its priorities. And if our priorities reflected the concerns of young people, it would be much better off, <laughs> climate, technology, automation, et cetera. And the only way a nation ends up reflecting the priorities of its young people is if its young people get engaged in, in, in public life, whether that's politics or culture or society, what have you. Um, so, so to me, I, I think, you know, young people's engagement is central to the, the solution here. Never mind the fact that Democrats will win elections, I think, if, if young people vote in bigger numbers. But the only other two cautionary notes I'd sound about American young people, you know, having uh, you know, really sought to to teach and, and podcast with the young audience. And um, as someone who's balanced on that precipice of heading into middle age myself, I try to stay in touch. I do worry about the dissatisfaction, the understandable anger and dissatisfaction with politics, just turning people off. Like this whole system is totally corrupt. Screw it. I'm out, you know, uh, because then, I mean, that's what, that, again, that's what an autocrat wants. He wants cynicism and apathy. And I worry, for instance, like, like a, about, some tipping point happening. And, and some of this is on the Biden administration to be responsive enough to young people's concerns to keep them engaged. Um, and then the other thing I'd like American Americans to do, and I think they're doing it, I'm very uh, pleased to see it in a way that I haven't before, is to see themselves as connected to an international community of young people. Bobby Kennedy spoke about this a long time ago, that the world's true international community is its young people, because young people have common interests in different places. Uh, and if American young people felt more connected to Hong Kong young people and to the experience of young people in different places around the world, um, I think that would lead to, to better global outcomes, too. So something that intrigues me is that President Biden sees that the international state of affairs can't improve without an improvement in domestic affairs first. Do you think that's true? And do you think Biden's approach to the intersectionality of domestic and foreign uh, affairs is the right way to improve things and reshape America's image abroad and fix the divisions at home. I, I could not agree with that more. Um, you know, the most important thing America can do is set a better democratic example. Uh, and I think we, we overweight the impact of our foreign policies sometimes and underweight just the impact of what example are we setting to the world? Um, because we could say all the right things about democracy, but if we're not living them at home, 
that has no credibility. Um, now, I do think where I have some difference with how Biden has framed it um, is he talks a lot about how democracies need to deliver. We need to prove that democracies can deliver. And, and what he's referencing there is that the, the Chinese argument is essentially, hey, look what we can do. You know, when you have an autocratic system, you know, you can move fast to lock down cities or to spend, build infrastructure and all that. And so Biden is, is understandably and rightly, I think, arguing that we have to show that democracies are not dysfunctional, that can solve problems, that can build infrastructure, what have you. That's only part of the story. We, we obviously also have to be setting an example and are we dealing with inequality in our democracy? Are we providing the, the opportunity and right to vote to everybody in our democracy? Um, are we dealing with racial injustice? Um, the, the harder, more contested kind of battlegrounds of national identity, which I think is part of how Biden thinks about it, but he tends to lead more with the more utilitarian piece of it. Um, but yeah, if you talk to people around the world, like the, the, the most important thing America can do for them is just show what, because, what, you know, in part because we are a country made up of people from everywhere. If we could show that a democracy works where anybody can be American, no matter what you look like, what you believe, it puts the lie to the us versus them politics and all these other places because they're saying, well, that doesn't work, you know. Um, and so that's the most important thing we can do. And, and that would mean that the partisanship and the political infighting, both between Democrats and Republicans and actually even within the parties themselves, um, is very damaging to our global image. And we're at a point now where we can't even get a bipartisan agreement to investigate what was clearly an insurrection on January 6th. And so that makes me wonder what you think we can do as a country. You know, is there any way to achieve bipartisanship? Um, I mean, I go back to the time of Kennedy when there was real uh, cooperation between Democrats and Republicans. And then I worked in the Carter administration when things were not so collegial, but there was still some discussions between the different parties. And then, of course, during the administration you served in, where the Republicans' main objective was to make sure that Obama didn't accomplish anything, a, a strategy that seems to be continuing now in the Biden administration. And with the filibuster in place, is there a way to get anything done in Washington? And if not, what do you think about amending the filibuster? I, I don't think so, Jill. Uh, look, I, and I wish it weren't the case. Like, nothing would be better for democracy than a healthy, vigorous um, Republican Party <laughs> um, that believed in a bunch of stuff that I disagree with about the size of government or taxation or foreign policy, but em it embraces democracy itself. That would be the best outcome. I just think at a certain point, you have to, 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 to look at the facts in front of your face and nothing about this Republican Party suggests that serious bipartisan progress is at all possible with them. You know, I mean, may, the, even the infrastructure, the apps, it, you know, Getting politicians to support spending a bunch of money building roads and, and bridges in their districts, I mean, that's pretty low bar. For, for, you know, I mean, like, like, like that's, that's basically all we're going to be able to do. And by the way, that, might, that bipartisan compromise may not even survive. Those people will never support protecting the right to vote for people. Those people will never support dealing with the climate crisis. They'll never support the kind of structural 
work that needs to be done to, to deal with inequality or what we just talked about in social media and disinformation. And, and so the reality, I think, is, yeah, I would get rid of the filibuster. Because you also have to understand that what they're doing is they're, they're trying to entrench minority rule of the majority so that they've got such a hold in the courts and they've such an electoral advantage because of the way the United States Senate favors smaller states. And they have such an advantage from their own ruthlessness that they are, they are rewarded for being obstructionist. Time, they use all these tools to deny Obama the capacity to confirm judges and con confirm a Supreme Court justice, and that allows them to basically tilt the courts. They were rewarded for, for acting against the norms of American democracy. They're rewarded by extreme partisan redistricting that is backed up by a right-wing Supreme Court. That, like, so why are we playing by a rule book that, by the way, is just a strange rule book. The filibuster is not in the Constitution. We're playing by some bizarre rule book that was written for a world that no longer exists if it ever did. Um, and so until Democrats internalize that mindset, um, we are going to be giving the Republicans an extreme advantage. And again, I'm not suggesting Democrats should violate laws and norms. I just don't think the filibuster is like, you know, the <laughs> sacred anchor of American democracy. Like some of this stuff is pretty basic. Um, in the same way that I think Again, extending statehood to D.C. Like, America has let in states throughout its history. There are people that are not represented in the United States Senate. Um, they should be a state. That, that's not like partisan hardball. That, there's a logic to it. So I think in a bunch of these areas, Democrats have to adjust to the reality that they're dealing with an illiberal party in the Republican Party that is not interested in bipartisanship. I, I, Victor and I certainly agree with you on, on the fact that the filibuster is not part of the Constitution and is now being used to give minority rule in a way that never was foreseen yeah. by our founders and that it needs to be seriously looked at. Um, and, and I'm hoping that maybe some of your words, because you have a, a big audience and a way of communicating it, will make a difference and that maybe the country will start focusing on the right thing to do in this. I think the, you know, the needle is moving on this stuff. I mean, the question is, is it moving fast enough? So if you looked yeah. at this in the Obama years, when the filibuster was being abused, because like you said, it, at it, at maybe the, the whole purpose is to kind of slow down and allow for debate. It wasn't to say things just die right. against a brick wall. In the Obama years, it, when McConnell really started abusing the filibuster to prevent Obama from doing anything in the, in the second term, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of questioning of the underlying existence of the filibuster. We've right. now gotten to a point where really there are, only, there are 48 you know, Democrats who seem like they're pretty much on board with doing away with this. And there's two holdouts in Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. So while it's incredibly frustrating that it's not gone yet, um, the, the debate is definitely moved significantly. And, and, and if we don't get there before November... Well, then hopefully we pick up a couple of Senate seats and then we get there. You know, this is politics. Like, you have to keep moving. And perhaps that raises the urgency of the midterm elections, that we have to keep on winning those elections. Otherwise, Republicans will keep on obstructing, as you say. Um, I just have one last question before I move into a couple more personal questions. Um, based off of the um, number of activists and young people that you talked to in Hungary, um, China, as well as uh, Russia, have you talked to them since Biden won? And if so, what have they said um, about their perspective of um, American democracy right now? You know, I think that... Um 
you know, overwhelmingly, you know, most people around the world, um, you know, were relieved that Joe Biden won. Um, but, um, you know, the Russians, I mean, Alexei Navalny's in prison. The Hong Kongers are, uh, you know, Joe Biden's election didn't reverse the, the direction of events in those places. And in Hungary, there's definitely um, a lot of relief that Joe Biden won and, and very, you know, uh, a lot of welcome, uh, a, a lot of people welcoming his you know, return to kind of speaking up for democratic values and, and trying to organize the U.S. and the European alliance around democracy in a way that kind of isolates an Orban, um, cuts him down to size. Um, but I think, you know, what where there's a limit to that is, you know, I, you know, you hear Biden say a lot of America's back and, and that that's a good message at the beginning of administration. Like, hey, we're back. We're normal again. We're going to engage our allies and, and, and stand up for democracy instead of engaging autocrats and standing up for autocracy. But that that only gets you so far. And um, and, and so for them, I think they want to see is America really going to follow through. Uh, and by the way, is America going to lose its mind again in four years? Uh, you know, the problem that I encountered globally is that it wasn't just the fact that Trump was president. It's the fact that, that we elected Trump president and could do that again. And so I think we have to understand that um, we are back in the sense that um, we're playing a constructive role on these things. And that's very welcome. But people are going to want to see that followed through in action. And they're going to see if we don't go crazy again in a few years. And so this process of building back our credibility is going to take time. The opportunity, and I talk about this at the end of the book, is that if we can fight through this, if we can show that you know, our democracy can take some body blows and, 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 and we can have the corrupt autocrat with the son-in-law down the hall and you know, we can have the mob storming the parliament and fight through that and come out stronger on the other end, I think that will be an incredibly powerful example for the world, much more powerful than giving you know, lectures on democracy from on high. Um, but that's going you know, to take time. That's a 10-year project, not a, a project for one presidential term. Right. And um, one question that I think that you really explore is kind of your outlook on America. And I'm wondering um, if you're optimistic about America and the other countries you write about um, and, and what it means to you to be an American in 2021 without the powers that you saw um, while you were growing up. Well, I think what I realized in writing the book is that when I was growing up, you know, coming of age, you know, I'm between you guys. Right. So I came of age politically around the time of the end of the Cold War. And there was a seeming inevitability, right, that freedom was winning and you know, these big questions of history were settled that kind of seeped into our American consciousness. Um, and, and this kind of, you know, intent on believing the better version of ourselves, right? I mean, um, and, and, you know, the, the America's always been two stories, right? It's always been a, a story of equality and democracy and, and, and human progress, but also a story of white supremacy and reactionary politics and, and a lot of ugly you know, aspects of our foreign policy, what have you. Um, and I think where I've kind of, in, 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 in writing this book and really looking pretty squarely at the darker aspects of the story, you know, um, where we went wrong, how that might have rippled out, how could it come to this, um, it makes you realize that the, the good story is even more important like the fact that we don't live up to it doesn't discredit the good story. Uh, it makes it more important to do the work. And so where I land is that being American is about doing the work 
of living up to the better story we tell about a multiracial, multiethnic democracy. It's not about that being granted. It's about what is every person and every generation doing to do the work of democracy and, and to pursue the ideal that we always fail to live up to. Um, but but we can better ourselves in trying to live up to this idea of a multiracial, multiethnic democracy. That that to me, it, you know, is what it means to be American, and that's what the world wants to see, see from us. Because, again, what's so powerful about it here is that we have people from everywhere. You know, they're Hungarian Americans, they're Chinese Americans, they're Russian Americans. Just to talk about the countries in this book, if if people from everywhere can make that work, then the world can make it work too. If we can't. Then there's no hope that the world can, right? And 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 so that to me is you know the the, the essential point here uh, of the subtitle being American. What you know is what does it mean to be American in the world we made? It means that we have to do the work. We can't assume that this is all granted or given. It's so inspiring, and we, you know, Jill and I we read it, and we really urge our audience to do so as well. And one kind of personal question, since I'm about to be a rising sophomore at UCLA. Um, I saw that you had um, taught at UCLA. Do you plan on returning to UCLA as a uh, professor in the distant future? I No, I do. I'd love to. I, uh, first of all, you're way ahead of where I was, sophomore year um, in life. Um, but um, yeah, I, 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 um, I've taught you know, both at UCLA and, and the other school across town <laughs> and loved it both times because I think that um, it's so important for people who are in positions of, you know, people who are in politics and, and foreign policy in particular can get so disconnected from ordinary, I mean, not ordinary is the wrong word, can get so disconnected from just human beings, you know, um, uh, and especially young people, right? If you're living in Washington and you're going in your 40s and 50s and 60s and you're working in foreign policy and government, you know, you just, you can really just live in a bubble <laughs> of people just like you who are working in those things. And, and, you know, there, there's a, someone once told me a great line that, you know, Washington is always the last place to get the news, you know. Um, young people understand technology. They understand storytelling. They understand what it means to look at the climate crisis as someone who has a lot of life left to live. Um, if we are not getting in, so so all that is to say, when I teach at a place like UCLA, it's not just the students who hopefully are getting something out of it. I get an extraordinary amount of it because I get that perspective that, that I couldn't get at like a think tank in Washington. Well, I envy the people who have taken your class and hopefully with UCLA running back up again <laughs> in the fall, I'll, I'll be able to be one of those students as well. But I think Jill has um, a final um, line that she would want right. you to read. You end your book in what I consider to be a really powerful way. And so I'd like to ask you to read the very last paragraph of your book and if you want to comment on it at all, I think it speaks for itself and is very powerful. But on page 336, if you would read that last paragraph. Sure thing. And, and the only comment I give is because it, it, it has a Jackie Robinson uh, illusion. Um, you know, Obama had asked us in, in giving a speech at Selma for the anniversary of the, the Selma March to make, assemble the cast of, of, of American heroes who'd been left out of the history books or, or maybe you know, represented at least the kind of scrappy underdog progressive tradition of, of American identity. And, and it was this wonderful list uh, uh, of people from, you know, Harriet Tubman to Sojourner Truth to the slaves who built the White House to the pioneers for women's rights, you know, and on and on and on. And one of the people was Jackie Robinson. And I always felt like Jackie Robinson was a metaphor for Obama, the guy who goes first, who has to do everything, you know, twice as good under twice as much scrutiny. 
and 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 his stealing of home in the World Series, which was this incredibly beautifully subversive act. <laughs> you know, um, the black man on third doing the thing that is not prohibited by the rules of the game, but kind of defies the logic of the game. So anyway, that's the context. So I'll read this now. We live in a time when the world is emerging into a single history, and you can feel the currents of that history moving in the wrong direction. You can see it in the transformation of Viktor Orban from young liberal to aging autocrat, the poisoning of Alexei Navalny, the knock on the door of a Hong Kong activist, or the smoke-filled California air. But the fact is that most people around the world can see it too, close enough to touch. America is not an exception to reality. We are a part of it. And we can offer the solidarity of a people who came from everywhere, the American people. Existing structures and inexhaustible grievances will present their own barriers. But there remains the opportunity afforded by each cycle of history to carefully watch the wind-up of a pitcher slowed by complacency and a sense of supremacy, to pause for a moment and feel the sum total of experience and brazen belief that propels the underdog's dash toward home. Thank you so much, Ben. I've enjoyed this conversation enormously. I know that our audience has learned a lot from it, and they should read your book because it will fill in all the interstices that we didn't cover here. And it's so well written. So thank you very much for being with us. We appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks guys. Thank you, Great ben. to see you. Thanks. Take care. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. You know you Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, 
you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.